And so from a very young age, I grew up with this understanding of injustice and what it is to be a vulnerable person who isn't safe in the place that most other people get to feel safe at home or within their country. And so growing up in the safe environment of New Zealand, you know, we grew up with all of these stories of of what it was like to have a government or a regime that didn't want you there and was going to go to great lengths to make you leave or, you know, or whatever it might be. Hello and welcome to This Is 8CD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a designer, educator and the host of This Is 8CD based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now, our goal here is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. In this episode, I caught up with Roya Azadi, Strategic Director at Paper Giant, a design consultancy based in Melbourne, Australia. Now, I follow a few places on my personal social media accounts and really, really respect the work that the folks at Paper Giant do and was really excited when I saw a project before Christmas that they did with the Supreme Court in Victoria around accessing justice. We chat about this project in detail and how Roya and the fellow team members built trust whilst working there, working alongside other consultancies and other practitioners within government and how they remained focused on the analog as opposed to the traction for digital and also what Roya brought to the project themselves through their own story. It's a really great conversation and I know you're going to really enjoy listening to Roya. If you like what we're doing at This Is Hate City, you can really help us out by leaving a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It should only take a couple of minutes and it really helps the findability out for other new listeners. Or you can go one better by becoming a patron. You can get an ad-free stream of the podcast for as little as €1.66 per month. You can get a shout-out as thanks. There's other plans there on thisishatecd.com. Literally all the money goes towards editing, hosting and maintaining the website which is a repository for human-centered design goodness. I really appreciate it, folks. But let's jump straight into this episode. Roya Azadi, how is it going? How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm not so bad. Um, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. But maybe we'll start off and we'll talk a little bit more um, about who you are, what you do, and where you're from. Where do I start? Um, So I'm Roya. Um, I'm currently working as a strategy director at Paper Giant, which is really great. I've been here since 2020. Um, Before this, I was at World Vision trying to figure out how to make um, child sponsorship work a bit better um, and have done a whole raft of different things before that. Um, So I won't get into those details, otherwise we'll be sitting here forever. Um, in terms of where I'm from, I'm from New Zealand originally, or actually I'm Iranian, um, but raised in New Zealand. And then I moved to Australia in 2005 to study law. Um, and I've come and gone a few times. I've lived in New York. I've lived in London. Um, and most recently, I also lived in Byron, the, the infamous Byron Bay. Um, but I've always Amen. come back to Melbourne. So great to be back here while, you know, everything's getting back to normal and feeling pretty um 2019 yeah for anyone who doesn't listen or hasn't really heard of paper giant they're um, a fantastic human-centered service design design consultancy that's relatively boutique is my understanding but they're awesome and a lot of the 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 work that comes out of paper giant I, i follow a couple of agencies around the world and paper giant is one of them so i hold them in the highest regard yeah i guess um I'm really flattered, first of all, that you picked us to be one of the one of the people that you follow. That's really cool. Um, so the purpose is is pretty simple, or it's you know it's it's easy to say, but more difficult to do, is that we're all about trying mm-hmm. to make better products, better services, and better policies. Um, mm-hmm. And what we mean by better is try to improve those things to make them be more just, more equitable, or more sustainable. Yeah. Um, so that leads us to doing lots of really interesting work for all the different levels of government. Um, we work with private organizations that have big impact. We sort of have worked with a lot of tech companies trying to figure out how, you know, they have such, such huge um, impacts. We try to help them make sure that their their products and services are being done the best that they can. Um, and I tend to work on a lot of the justice-related projects. Yeah. So I've been really lucky to work with a lot of um community legal centers 
um, a really cool project called the Police Accountability Project oh, nice. um, and most recently worked on a really cool project with people with lived experience of being reincarcerated to figure out how we can help break the cycle of reincarceration. Oh, man, what a project. That's <laughs> I like we were going to be talking about another project, but if we have time, I'd love to go back to that one. Um, yeah, that, it's super that, cool. You, you snuck that one under the carpet there and kind of pulled it out in the last minute <laughs> in this episode. Not a fan of that kind of stuff. But anyway, I want to come back to that one. <laughs> the project that really caught my eye, um, it was, I'm trying to you know look back at my notes here. It was pre, pre-Christmas because I remember I was literally um, checked out for Christmas. It was around mid-December. And the title of it was a user experience strategy to improve access to justice at the Supreme Court. And I'm like, bing, right up my street, okay? Because a lot of the stuff that I would call um, kind of a sea change in my life was when I worked in government, uh, especially in Australia, and worked in the justice system. And I could really see what that looked like. Now, one of the questions um, that I really wanted to talk to you a little bit about is the perspective that you mentioned that you were born in uh, Iran. You've lived in New Zealand and you migrated to Australia, okay? What perspective and what value do you place on um, those different lenses uh, that you're able to bring to your to your work as a human-centered designer, a strategic designer, whatever you want to call it? Um, how, how, how do you think that has actually benefited you in your in your career? Or has yeah, it? Yeah, so I'll have to... I'll have to make one correction, which is that I was born in New Zealand. Mm. So my parents had just immigrated. Um, So I think it's had a really big impact. People can have different stories, but I think end up in the same place I have, which is um, as a third culture kid, as a, you know, as a member of a diaspora, um, not just my own, but also, you know, I grew up in a really Polynesian community. you know, uh, community in South Auckland. And so they were they were also part of a diaspora that I got to come in touch with a lot. Um, I was also part of a religious community, the Baha'i faith, for those okay. who are familiar. Um, yeah. And so all of those things, I think, um, meant that I was coming from a very, very young age. I was, I was coming across lots of different kinds of people who were different to me. They came from different cultures. They came from... Um, different classes they came from all you know walks of life Um, and so I have often felt quite comfortable in a range of situations Um, and Mm. I think one of my one of my sort of special skills um, you know hopefully it's not that unique um, Mm. is that I think I can kind of sit down with anybody um, and find common ground something to laugh about something to connect over and I think that that's always been something that I found very easy because of growing up in this very very um, diverse community. Mm. So if you look at someone who's localized and is born and raised in a specific place um, do you think some of the work that you do um is it better to have that perspective that you're talking about there versus the localized person so i know people who are born and bred and and raised and they've lived in australia um and what i used to often hear when i would enter the conversations sometimes midway through a project was you give a different set of uh, perspectives um what it looks like from the outsider um, can you speak to any lived experience in yourself, um, maybe your friends, family, whatever it was, that may um, that that actually have kind of fueled the fire for wanting to to see change? Because I know you studied law. How far back does the the change maker in you, Roya, go? Um, are you okay to talk about that? Because I know it's a it's a pretty personal question. Yeah. Um, well, I think. Um... The, the change maker that's in me, that's a really um, interesting way of putting it, it's really ingrained in the fact that my parents um, are part of this religious minority that was very heavily persecuted. Um, mm. a, lot of, a lot of suffering um, in quite sort of real and tangible ways happened by my immediate family, my parents included, not to mention the, the wider um, community that they're a part of, you know, aunties and uncles, parents of friends, all of this kind of stuff. And I think um, we're very shaped by the stories that we grow up with and the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Um, and one of the stories that was very real for me was um, 
why our family had to leave Iran and mm. why all of our friends' um, parents also had to immigrate and why it was to come to be that we couldn't go back to visit and all this kind of stuff. And so from a very young age, I grew up with this um, understanding of um, of injustice and um, what it is to be a vulnerable person who, you know, is, is, isn't safe in the place that most other people get to feel safe um, at home or within their country. Um, mm. And so growing up in the safe environment of New Zealand, um, you know, we grew up with all of these stories of, of what it was like to have a government or a regime that didn't want you there and was going to go to great lengths um, to make you leave or, you know, or whatever yeah. it might be. And so I think growing up with all those stories and really having it be um, not just something that I heard, but something that we lived every day um, was really impactful for making choices about what I was to go on to do. And I know it's the same for a lot of my peer group as well, who, who grew up in that environment. You'll find a lot of people who in the different careers that they've chosen, a lot of members of that Baha'i community mm. who, um, you know, want to help and they've, ta and they've taken um, careers and, and they followed pathways that allow them to do that. And I know mm. that that's not unique to the particular community that I grew up in. There's lots mm. and lots and lots of other communities that also um, grew up, you know, with, with these stories that make you go, hey, you know, I can, I can help. I can do something to make things a bit better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a story that keeps on coming back up on the podcast and even on other podcasts that I listen to, second generation people moving to another place and wanting to better the world. You know, they, they enter this stage of their life where they're like, you know, I'm not satisfied to to work for an organization that is contributing to the, the destruction of the planet or society or all these bits that hold together the fabric of society. So it's really refreshing to to hear that again, like from from you, from your perspective. Just to to follow up, what you're talking about there is the revolution in '79 in uh, Iran, isn't it? Like the the Pahlavi um, uh, regime, is that right? They were the dynasty, the monarchy dynasty, yeah. that was ousted in '79, and then the Islamic regime came in. Okay, yeah. So. You you studied law, okay. I've mentioned that in uh, in a fleeting piece there beforehand. Um, what was your interest when you entered the the law profession? What were you hoping to achieve by? And that's not being condescending or patronising. <laughs> but what were you, what were you, what were your dreams when you set out to study law? In in choosing law in the first place, yeah, I'm straight into well, design. It's yeah, a I'm great. Sure it's a great question, Jerry. So you know, if anybody who's listening to the podcast is um. Is, um, is, you know, maybe Middle Eastern or from somewhere whose culture is kind of similar to that. They might have a similar, they might have received a similar instruction when they were young, which is that you can study um, law, medicine, engineering, dentistry, or anything else as long as you get your PhD. Um, and that is very, very ingrained in you from a young age when you go what, what am I going to be when I grow up oh you know somebody's going to go study history and your parents go dentistry is good law is good <laughs> doctor is very good you should pick one of those ones um so I think um you know I think on on the one hand there is that parental pressure there was a lot of parental pressure um mm -hmm. which is really really understandable they give up so much to come to these places where yeah. everything is suddenly possible things that were you know just dreams in the country that they came from. Um, so, you know, I really, really understand that. And then add to that, you know, wanting your children to to be the person or the character who might have actually helped you, um, yeah. you know, when you had been in that situation when you were younger. So yeah. I think a little bit of wanting to be a good Iranian daughter and a little bit of, you know, wanting to make that change. Um, and I thought that if you want to more accessible mm -hmm. that law was a good thing to go to study um what <laughs> what i didn't know you know law is not um law is a lot of things yeah. parts of it are about justice a lot of it is actually just part, part of the paperwork machinery that makes the world <laughs> run around mm -hmm. um 
And so there are parts of it that were really, really amazing. Um, and there yeah. was a lot of it that was super boring and really not God, for me. Yeah. Um, so remember, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a challenge. I remember in, in, um, hopefully I'm not speaking out of line here, but in ODPP in Sydney, uh, I was doing an evaluation for, um, Lloyd Bob, uh, who was the head of DPP at the time, but, I remember I was going in every day for a couple of weeks and I'd meet the same person at the same time at the same photocopier and they would stand there from nine o'clock to two o'clock. And after a couple of days, I went over and I go, what are you doing? Like, like you're here all the time photographing. I'm just getting ready for a court case. And I'm like, what? They were just duplicating pages and they were a lawyer. (laughs) And I was yeah. like, this cannot be the best use of your time. Like there's a backlog in the courts and you are here photocopying. Yeah, it's a it's a really tricky one, I think, um, considering exactly that story that you just told the other, you know, yeah. or like, why does it take so hard to make, you know, why is it so uh, complicated to make, you know, laws, you know, actually, um, ch- you know, change to, to be better or, or whatever yeah. it is. And I think... It is good that all of those things are complicated and slow when legislation happens really quickly. All of these things, you know, are signs that you're not really operating in a proper democracy and people can take advantage of that. So as much as mm-hmm. it's really crazy to see people walking around with suitcases full of paper and um, and see legislation mm-hmm. just takes so long to change, it is some of it is also for our protection. So yeah. it's not all bad. In, in, in the world of... Uh, of um you know, second generation, or in your case, it's probably third generation. Um, when you choose to become a lawyer and you ultimately move out into another profession, there must be some sort of safeguarding around your own mental health, how, how you can protect yourself from the scrutiny of others, okay? You don't have to answer this question, by the way, but the imposter syndrome is something that I see in second and third generation people is is very real. Is that something that you have yourself? Is that something you're happy to talk about as well? You know, the whole kind of the second guessing, like, you know, am I good enough to do this kind of work? And am I, what am I bringing to this? Is Am yeah. I speaking out of line here? Or is that something that you've encountered yourself? No, in your career? Yeah, I think it's a really important topic, particularly for this area that we work in, because I think the story is a bit different in Europe, but in Australia, um, you could only really study it quite recently. So the vast yeah. majority of people who are working in this area, they studied completely different things. And I think mm. um, the irony yeah. is that we are in, we work in an industry that is spending a lot of time trying to convince everybody that lived yeah. experience is just as important as professional or academic experience or whatever it is, which is why we want to design thing with the end user rather than locking people right. in a room and 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 getting them to it. and yet i think when it comes to ourselves we go oh if i don't have a master's degree in the design futures program or whatever right. am i even can i even call myself a designer whatever it is um yeah which is <laughs> you know it's, we're doing to ourselves the exact thing that we're trying to convince everybody else you know that that it's not that it's not a real thing um so i think there's a lot of learning to trust that our own lived experience of doing this work is okay you don't need to have a master's degree you don't need to have a phd um you need to have certain skills like certain competencies and that kind of stuff to to be able to do this work well um but there's a whole range of people that can do it no matter what background you came from and we at Paper Giant, we love hiring people that come from who've taken an unusual pathway to get here because they bring yeah. something new. And our whole world is about knowing all the rules so that you can break them so you can do it differently and and yeah. actually bring that creativity into into designing things to be better. Absolutely. I mean, if everyone goes through the same conveyor belt, you know, we end up with a very vanilla looking world and we need to make sure that we're accommodating and including everyone in the conversation as as much as we, we possibly can. Um, and many of the best designers exactly. that, I, that I know um, never studied design. 
they bring all these different perspectives into it. I was speaking to Oliver Vidlik, who's um, he owns Contextual or uh, Mobile Experience, their UX agency in, in Australia in Sydney. And he's not the first person in the last number of weeks that I'm seeing this parallel happening, this this career arc emerging of they study something in university and then later on in their career that re-emerges, that pattern re-emerges and that strength, that something that we probably discounted it or swept under the carpet a little bit to, to kind of wear the, the designer cape for a number of years. Ben Reason from LiveWork, he's one of the, he's the last remaining founder of LiveWork, studied um, fine art, but was really interested um, around sustainability and the understanding of the impact on the earth and stuff. That was in the mid 90s. And that's re-emerged into the future of LiveWork now. Like he's, he's kind of tapped back into that former self, if you want. Okay. And hopefully I'm not doing Ben a disservice there. I want to ask you a little bit more around the project that we're going to be speaking on a little bit more in in depth, okay? So your formative education was in law, okay? So you studied law. Um, the power of language and being able to speak to people in their language is really, really important, okay? And lived experience, as we've mentioned, is really, really important. How important was it that you had a level of competency when you went into start that project that you were a designer but you were also had this in your back pocket that you were able to speak in the certain legalese if you want to help build trust is that something that you were aware of or is that something that um you know is just living there mm. yeah um so I worked on the project with um two other really fantastic designers Wendy Fox and Bonnie Graham who are now at City of Melbourne. Um, and they, not, neither of them come from legal backgrounds. They both, you know, have a, a huge amount of experience um, yeah. as designers but came from quite different backgrounds. And so I think um, there's a little bit of safety in in one of us being able to at least, at least appear like we kind of mm -hmm. at the get-go sort of knew what was going on and all that kind of stuff. So I think that the difference that it made, that I had that background, um, was... I could, uh, I don't know if it, if it was really necessary. I think that Wendy and Bonnie, for example, would have been totally fine if yeah. I hadn't been there at all. Mm. Um, yeah. But I think all that I was able to do was maybe just explain a few things a bit faster. Maybe I just fast forwarded a little bit of the, um, this is how the court system works. So this is kind of typical experiences that a lawyer might have. Um, and to be honest, those things weren't even things that I actually learned in law school. They were things that I had just picked up from knowing lots of lawyers. Okay. Um, because one of the th one of the insights that we had from the all of the research that we did, which is again, you know, relatable to what we're talking about, is um, that law school really anything about the court system. That's mm -hmm quite a different oh, yeah. thing and the expectation is that you learn about that on the job and so I had that same experience of I went to law school people on our team other people you know around kind of expected that I would know certain things but have a subject on the court system and how all of the paperwork goes for submitting a case or any of that kind of stuff so I was learning a lot as well doing this project when the project came about like because we've we've spoken about paper giant and a lot of the work that they they tend to pick up and and focus on is you know a lot of it's around the justice justice process which i'm seeing can you remember what it was like at the start of the project when yourself wendy and bonnie um entered into the the, the conversations within the organization and also just the building because it was it was pre-pandemic when this one kicked off what did it look like and what did it feel like? Because I understand that you just joined Paper Giant as well. So you're going through the whole kind of formative process of building relationships with your team uh, team members. And then you also had to go into a client. Okay, So this piece is something that I'm really interested in, in terms of the success outcomes from a project. The first couple of days are really, really important. How you build trust. What did you do at that time? Uh, and are you okay to talk about this? Because I'm aware some of it might be somewhat sensitive. Yeah. Um, well, I think that the thing that we were really um, lucky 
with is that we did happen to start just a couple of weeks before the pandemic kind of became a thing that we needed to worry about and talk about and started to influence our day-to-day lives. And so at Paper Giant, we, well, I suppose I, I heard about this. I had only started the week that we also started this project, but I think everybody was in the habit of kind of working on a rhythm of a couple of days in the client's office, a couple of days in the paper giant office. So every that habit was already within the way that we do consulting here. Mm-hmm. And so we fell into line with that as well and said, all right, well, let's in the first couple of weeks of the project, why don't we spend lots of extra time because we're just getting to know everybody. We want to observe the, um, the call center. We want to observe the registrars doing their work. We want to go and sit in one of the courtrooms and all that kind of stuff. And so we really wanted, uh, we spent those first couple of weeks doing a lot of FaceTime in their office. And that was really interesting as well, because actually there was a bunch of other consultants who, um, from other organizations who were actually working on adjacent pieces. Um, so the project, to zoom out a little bit or to provide a little mm-hmm. bit of a bigger picture, the project that we were working on, which was about improving the experience of going to court, was part of a much, much larger um, program of work that had heaps of different pieces um, and all of those pieces were being bitten off by other consultancies and other types of characters. And so we had to align with all of these sort of visibility measures and reporting measures and governance mm-hmm. measures that they had in place. Um, yeah. So I'm... when we were in the office, so No, no, go ahead. When you were in the office. When we were in the office, um, we were sitting alongside all of the other consultants who were working on all of the other pieces. Okay. And that was really cool because we could see how other people were working. We could we could get insight into how their project was going to influence our project in a really um, casual, conversational way instead yeah. of needing to wait until they had finished reporting on that section and we would receive the report and then you know, it was just so, it was so easy and so great. We were just sitting next to each other and go, what are you guys working on? Oh, this is where we got to. Oh, we've got the same insight. Cool. Um, yeah. That's validating. That's kind of cool. And some experiences mm-hmm. that I've had uh, and I've heard from others as well, when you work alongside other consultancies, there's, there tends to be a bit of a wall built around the, the, that whatever separate consultancies work and not being happy to share stuff. I know I did work alongside, um, an agency and um they were not happy with sharing the research at the same time i was doing research and i was just like why not we're working on the same client like you know like we're working in the same groups of people um yeah so i think what was different in our situation is that none of us were doing projects that were the same so we had deloitte okay, who was so working on a workforce yeah. planning thing mm-hmm. okay, which is adjacent enough. but different still and there was another group who were working on um redesigning something to do with the call centers and so they were all quite different okay so the first couple of days um you you, well was it the first week or two weeks i think in our notes here that you have was in the office and then somebody got the sniffles um in around china at that time (gasps) that became covid um and I, i think a lot of us has kind of have blanked out months of 2020 due to the extreme trauma what was it like entering a new business a huge project because this is this was a really big project and um and being able to retain the likelihood of kicking goals when everything is moved online um what was the experience like at that time working within the supreme court system within victoria um, how did you handle the tooling and the sharing of data, especially around research? Cause I know you did 60 interviews. Were all of those online and were some of them in person? Talk a little bit more around that whole kind of process. Cause the, the whole data sensitivity piece, something I've heard time and time again, it was a real problem. Yeah, it was, um, look, I don't need to say, I don't need to re-trigger anyone, but it was in, um, fathomably stressful time yeah um yeah i just it was so crazy and it spanned the move but between us um starting the starting the research and handing in the that kind of deliverable i think it was about six weeks that 
went from everything being totally fine to everybody complete I think we were in lockdown by the end of those six weeks so we spanned the like wait we have to make a COVID plan what's that you know yeah. all the way to um you know we're just living living surviving. online and glued yeah. to our computers and just surviving and not you sure how far you can go from your house yeah so, Melbourne was, Melbourne was like one of the worst hit cities on the planet in terms of the extent of the lockdowns folks I don't know yeah. it was months months and months um at home yeah yeah the first the first lockdown that we had i don't even know if i'm remembering this correctly obviously i've blocked it all out of memory Mm. but i think that the first one was maybe four weeks or six weeks three weeks i do is it three weeks i think no i think it was three months there was a no the second one in 2020 Mm. was three months the first one was less than that i can't you know i can't remember yeah but it was i remember at the time feeling like this is insane insane how long it is and then the second one happened and i was like i can't believe we thought that was long that was like a blink of an eyelid compared to what's happened now um so it was incredibly stressful um but it's it's such a credit to the team not just um Wendy, Bonnie, and our founder, Ruben, who we were also working really closely with, who, you know, we all supported each other really well and figured out how to keep going. Um, but also the team that we had at, at the Supreme Court were able to figure, figure out how to move court online, which was yeah. they had said that they can't do, you know, for such a long time and then they'd figured it out in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. You know, they managed to... to to do all of that as well as, you know, keep everything ticking along. They're really, really amazing people um, and very good at sort of reacting uh, to the the crisis at hand. So we've managed to um, keep the project going without really skipping, as you know, too much of a step. Absolutely. So let's talk about the research. I mentioned there you did 60 interviews, which um, mm. is quite a lot. But those, <laughs> for anyone, that's a lot. I suppose you split it across three people, but still it's a lot of data to synthesize, to sort of distill some sort of actionable insights off the back of it. But you um, you boiled them down into four archetypes, um, I can see in my notes here. Are you okay to talk about the archetypes and, and um, how you got to that point? Um, because I know like there's there's a couple of really fantastic names that you've given them, like uh, the Constellation Seeker. And the Constellation Seeker was the one that made me burst out laughing in, in the nicest possible way when I <laughs> when I saw this before Christmas, you know, as I'm drinking my coffee in the morning. I was like, because the Constellation Seeker is the one that I resonated the most with whenever I was working in that process, because it's hard. And an awful lot of the people that work within the justice system permanently that tends to be the emotion that I saw quite a lot. It's the whole kind of like, oh, didn't get that, didn't work, or I had problems with this. Maybe talk to that a little bit more if you're okay to do that, Roya, please. Yeah. So oh, it was such an interesting piece of research. Mm. I wish I could tell you all the all of the details about it. It was it was really fascinating to understand all these different kinds of characters that go to court um and something that stood out from the very first you know conversation and was a theme throughout the whole thing was um so maybe a quick sort of piece of context is that the people that we were working with at the supreme court it's not the judges and the judges associates and that those kinds of um people it's this part of the court which is called the registry and the registry essentially is kind of like the concierge for the court system so their job is to help anybody who wants to go to court get organized, get all of their paperwork together so that they can have a successful day in court with the judge and the judge's associates. Um, we were talking to a lot of these people who worked at the registry saying, who calls you? Who emails you? Who's coming in? Who do you need to help? Um, and their focus was always about these, this certain type of person who takes up all of their time Mm. Um, who's called the self-represented litigant. I'm sure some of the listeners are familiar with that phrase. So self-represented litigants are people who, it's pretty much in the name, they don't have a lawyer, they're turning up by themselves. There's heaps of reasons why people would do that. One of them is that funding for pro bono legal work, for legal aid, all that kind of stuff is massively reduced. So a lot of people who 
once upon a time could have gotten a lawyer for free, just can't now. There's not enough of that mm. still happening. So they're forced to represent themselves. There's another class of persons who choose to represent themselves. Yeah. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why people do that. Sometimes it's because they come from a legal background. Sometimes it's because they you know, believe that you shouldn't have to have a lawyer to go to the the highest court in the state. So all kinds of reasons why somebody might choose to represent themselves. Yeah. Um, but people often talk about these self-represented, sorry, members of the registry often talk about self-represented litigants in a very... Um, Disparaging way. Disparaging. Yeah. Nicest way to say <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. That yeah. was a good, good <laughs> word. Um, I was just remembering sort of the look on people's faces when they talk about it. It's sort of a bit tired. Mm. They have kind of a laugh on their lips. So they've got, they have stories about these guys. There was yeah. this one person that everybody kept talking about. I can't remember his, um, can't remember his name, but everyone went, oh, just for the sake of arguing, I'll call him, you know, John. They went, oh, John, everybody knows John. You know, he's been at the court yeah. for, for, for decades he's been coming here for such a long time he's his case never ends he just appeals and appeals and appeals and he keeps going um and they all kind of talked about him in this sort of funny like very familiar way they had all come across him at some point it was almost this sort of like he's a friend of the office he's this guy who's always around and what was so funny was that they had described what he looks like and i was on the steps of the court one day and i saw him um who's you know pretty distinctive he had a folder in his arms um, and he was on the steps chatting to a security guard and the security guard had said, Hey, John, I haven't seen you around in a while. And John said, Oh, um, I just had to take a holiday. You know, I had to get away from all of this. And I remember thinking for John, this is a job. He, mm. this is so much of a full-time occupation for him that he had to take a holiday from it and now can come back to it refreshed <laughs> to keep going. So some of these people, not all of them, but some of yeah. them, they, they are, Really, they're a lot very yeah. familiar to the registry. <clears throat> they are taking up a lot of um, a lot of space in the, in that system. Um, and so, what we heard a lot of from the registry people is saying, "We can't help. We can't help everybody because some people need so much more yeah. of our time, either because their case is very complicated or because they're um, they just kind of don't know what they're doing." all of this kind of stuff. So we're trying to answer this question of how can we make sure that the people who are going to court are having a positive experience, that the registry is supported to help sure. as many people well as they can. How can we use digital to help make some of these processes smoother? Um, you know, something that we were talking about the other day is that a really key part of a democratic society is that the backlog mm. in the court is low. And yeah. so making sure that people, that there's a really sort of efficient process for making sure that cases are getting to the judges in a timely manner um, and being resolved is really, really important. And what we, you know, we're trying to help the registry do is optimize all of these different pathways to make sure that that backlog yeah. can stay really low. One of the pieces that I, I really enjoyed about this um this case study was that you didn't throw technology at the problem okay now what tends to be um and i don't want to point the fingers at any consultancy here but whenever the consultancies go in they do work um they tend to be okay well we can actually improve the efficiency here by pushing people online to complete a form uh reduce the overhead the purpose of technology is to to try and, and enable a more of a human connection. Okay. It's not there to replace it. Uh, and that's my perspective. And what I really enjoyed hearing here was you were improving the backstage performance. Okay. You were improving the, the bits that kind of drain the resources, both from a technical and a process and a, and a people perspective as well to enable a more of a humane service to be delivered. How was that um, vision shared across all the other consultancies that were working alongside Paper Giant at the time? Or is that something that Paper Giant um, somewhat stood up and said, well, actually, this is, this is our perspective. This is our take on that. And if so, how was it received? Mm, um, I 
think we we didn't do so much of the backstage stuff. Our solutions were still quite front stage because we had identified that a lot of the mm. challenge um, was actually that information was not being delivered. Information that was useful was not being delivered to people right. in the way that it needed to be. And so a lot of the angle was yeah. around delivery of information. Um, the websites IA and, you know, all of this kind of stuff is a big yeah. part of that story. I think another point that's worth making, just what you were saying about digital, is that um, one thing that I I really love about Paper Giant and, and one of the one of the things that I appreciate the most when we're going through, you know, the pitching mm. process or talking to different clients is that we are very much platform agnostic. We're not, we don't employ developers and that is specifically so that we are not married to pitching those kinds of solutions to yeah. people. We're very co-design focused and we always want to give ourselves the opportunity to be led by the wisdom of the people that we are talking to and asking to design those yeah, solutions so that if they come back and say, you know what, you actually just need a sign on the wall, then we can just do that and not be worried that half of our staff is sitting there without anything to do because we've got a bunch of, you know, yeah. back-end developers. Um, so I think that's a, a really key factor in this project was that we started it having absolutely no idea what was going to come out the other end. Um, yeah. We were fully prepared for maybe we were going to need to paint arrows on the floor. Maybe there was going to be a wayfinding yeah. within the courts and this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a coincidence that in the end, um, co-design advisory did see that digital was going to be the, the website was going to be the most suitable way to deliver mm. um, some of the things that they talked about, but we were fully prepared for it to not yeah. and that's go that way. But I, I love that because, um, and I was kind of smiling there a few seconds ago because uh, I would have loved that to have been the outcome that we just need to put a poster on the wall or put an arrow on, on, on the ground and see how that stacks up alongside some of the other major consultancies because there tends to be this whole kind of encouragement of like okay well we need to sort of um f follow through on, on giving a, a massive piece of uh you know i'm doing air quotes value here in terms of it might be a brand new app or something that will that'll lead to more work and it has this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where they kind of find themselves living in there for 10 years, building the client. I don't hear that coming back here in this instance. It was very much, and that's not to blow smoke, but it's really important that that, that is grounded here in the principles of, of actually the founders as well. It's not about remaining present in, in the client's offices for a long period of time where you can actually bill extensively. Mm. Some of follow? the ideas that we'd even talked about were so analog. We had even imagined mm. there are these people who want to tell their stories. Is there a, somebody who sits in a court and listens to stories, who collects those stories, who does some kind of um, insight analysis, some kind of some kind of project that makes collecting those stories feel meaningful? And you actually, t if somebody did that work, that would be a huge burden off of the shoulders of the registry who sit and yeah. often are spending hours listening to people tell their story that has nothing yeah. to do with the work that the registry is actually able to help people do. So we gave ourselves permission to really think broadly and think big yeah. about what are all of the possible things that could help take pressure off of the registry so they can put their energy with the people who have sort of specialist situations that need the most help. And um, mm. and make a more frictionless, smooth experience for those who whose needs are a bit less. Really nice. Um, in terms of the the output of the project, and I, I hate saying output, but we know the outcome was targeted towards access of justice. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what was the the final piece that you left the Supreme Court with? What what did that look like? So what it ended up looking like is we that we handed over was there was these um, archetypes. Mm. So they have ended up becoming a part of their training for all new registry members. Um, so that was kind of one very practical yeah. you know, yeah, use, use of that work. 
Um, and the other key piece was that there was some, um, so they were doing a, a separate project that was really significant, was about um, redesigning the website. And so as the co-design group began sort of developing their ideas and that kind of thing, we understood that we would have the opportunity to actually feed into this other huge piece of work that was happening. Um, mm -hmm. And so what was uh, handed over in the end were information that the uh, that the co-design advisory had sort of very emphatically said, this is what I needed and this is what I couldn't find. And it would have just made everything so much better. Um, it, so one of them, for example, sorry. Hmm. No, go ahead. Okay. Can you give us an example? <laughs> and then you were about to tell us. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes these things sound simple, um, yeah. but. That's sometimes what's required. You know, <laughs> sometimes yeah. you have to do a lot of work to figure out the simple thing. So one of them was, um, was, so one of the, one of the key problems is that there's a lot of anxiety of people who going who go to court um, and that anxiety comes from just unfamiliarity. Yeah. And so this was a really, really big learning for the registry that lawyers even would be unfamiliar with how things happen at court. And there's lots of reasons for that. If you don't go to court, if you only go to court once every 10 years, everything changes. The building changes, the hallways change. Um, yeah. So even lawyers, young lawyers who have never done it before, self-represented litigants, there's lots and lots of reasons why people get a lot of anxiety about going to court. And this came through so heavily in the research was people just talking about, you know, more than butterflies in the stomach, the elephants in the stomach, feeling nauseous, um, just hating every single day, losing weight, their hair falling out, all of this kind of stuff is very, very um, just, you know, huge, huge um, personal um consequences of of going through that much stress and so when they talked about the things when they talked about the experience of going to court what it felt like not not where do you stand what do you wear how do you bring all of this paper i feel like an idiot for having a suitcase but then you get there and see that's what everybody else did we went this is actually quite simple stuff if you have yeah. a video series that explains this is the layout of a courtroom this is where this person stands. This is where that person stands. Everybody has to stand up at this time and not at that time. And except, you know, all this kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, it would make people feel much more comfortable to turn up on that day and not want to, you know, throw up their lunch before they go. Um, and so one of the, the recommendations was actually to invest in creating a video series that was able to cross some cultural boundaries so you would be able to provide it different languages and that kind of thing yeah. um, and really use you know a visual storytelling mechanism um, rather than a pdf hidden yeah. on your website to just explain some of this really simple evergreen stuff about mm -hmm. going to court um, which entrance you should go in the fact that you're going to have to go through security and being patted down is a reality that might happen yeah. all of this stuff um, were things that our co-design group, they were terrified yeah. of it um, and yeah. it made going really scary. So knowing, that was one suggestion. Yeah, knowing who's who in the zoo is something that I kept on hearing time and time again. Like who is the person that has got the the, the ability to make the decision was, um, yeah. you know, just stuff like that, like, you know, um, was relatively kind of well-known amongst people who live within the system but people who are unfamiliar with it it was really kind of like foreign to them um and it's funny that you ended up with that as the uh, the outcome because when i was working w in the project around vulnerability that was one of my key recommendations was a video series that was somewhat childlike because i was targeting um children primarily um as opposed yeah. to just adult 1980s retro videos that have been pulled across from the UK. Yeah, so, which aren't relevant. You know, that's, that's relevant the, um, yeah. yeah, the, they, they do have to be made specifically, I think, for the courts because so much mm. can be, yeah, unfamiliar across countries changed. and even as across regional changes. metro. But as the policy changes, the, the, the content needs to change as well. And then the cost of production for, for producing those videos was, uh, was massive. 
So, you know, scripting and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, wow, okay, how do we do this? And it's, it's almost, you need to become a content provider as well when you're delivering yeah. service and having that yeah. skill set amongst government was quite alien to a lot of, a lot of them that I was speaking to at that time. Mm. It was well, such yeah. an interesting one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, it can feel the thing that's so interesting about the video thing is that the possible impact is so significant. What was that? The possible impact is so significant because a lot of these, the, the stress that people experience is so extremely heightened. Going to the Supreme Court of the state is a once in a lifetime experience for a lot of people. And for many people, it's the worst experience of their life is going to do it. And they, the, the anxiety and the stress emanates and it impacts everybody that they're coming in contact with. So the effect of reducing that stress and reducing that anxiety has such a disproportionate impact on everybody's experience of being in that place um, that, it, you know, something as simple as making a video that explains where you stand, the impact of it really can't be discounted. Absolutely. No one wants to be made feel like they're, they're making mistakes and it's really empowering those behaviors to, to, to shine through on the day um so it's you know it, it sounds like it's it's a very logical outcome but it, sometimes that's that's kind of what the research and that's what the the co-design um the people who were part of the process that was that was one of their suggestions yeah correct? i think it's like giving people confidence it, it gives you confidence when you've gone through a process like this it means that the the courts and whoever can go and really throw the full weight of their um you know of their position or their money behind it because they know that the idea came about in a defendable logical Absolutely. way we're we're coming towards the end of the episode here um i want to thank you for your time and your energy and your vulnerability and answering some of the questions that, that i Thanks presented for having me. no no it was it was absolutely fantastic to to speak with you and as i said like you know i'm a big fan of of the work that paper giant do specifically because it's where I see design being the most effective and that's where um, my love from it comes. So um, big, thank big you. shout out to the team there at Paper Giant as well. If people want to reach out oh, to you, um, I'll put a link to this, um, the case study on the Paper Giant website, because I know people might want to follow along as they're listening to this episode. Um, but if there's anything else that you want to include in the show notes, just let me know and I'll drop it into the show notes for you for people to listen and to follow along with. But if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do it? What what are the best way for people to to get in touch with with Roya? Yeah, LinkedIn is good. I also have um my web like my personal website. There's an ah. email address there, so you can just go to royaarmaazadi dot com. Nice. Um, so there's an email address there. LinkedIn is fine, but you know if there's anybody who's working in the justice um or sort of court related world and wants to sort of hear more about this, I'd be really more than happy to share it. Yeah, internationally as well, because I know there's some fantastic Definitely. work. Uh, have you have you connected with the Design Justice Network in the US as well? I haven't. Yeah, they're a great. But I will network. now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like they're, they're a great one. Uh, they do great work as well around change makers. Roy, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Jerry. There you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.